Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. This week I'm joined by Natalie Krebs. Natalie is a journalist and an editor over at Outdoor Life magazine, one of the uh, longest standing and uh, most well-respected legacy uh, magazines in the hunting and outdoor space. Uh, She's also a board member of Arkansas BHA and... uh, a really rad person. She's edited a, a a few pieces that I've written for Outdoor Life. She's assigned me some of them, and uh, she's been open to me pitching some articles. And she's a person that the more I get to know her, the more I like her. She's a, a fantastic hunter, incredibly thoughtful person, and uh, she's as an editor, she's given me uh, a few really profound notes and pieces of information that has uh it's dramatically affected the way that i write for the last uh year or so so uh natalie was kind enough to let me come over to her house which is uh, i will make a note is kind of beautifully decorated with a lot of really amazing euro mount skulls uh from her travels around the world uh hunting Uh, she's She's got some really awesome white-tailed deer in there. She's got some cool uh, exotic animals from uh, a trip over to Africa that we discussed a little bit. And uh, I don't know that that's, uh, that's here or there. It just it just kind of added to the, uh, I don't know, like the allure and kind of, you know, it was, it was just like some good bragging rights stuff when I went over to her house and I just saw that it was super tastefully decorated with these really amazing and striking, uh, you know, trophies in the good way, uh, from, you know, a life lived hunting and traveling around the world and interviewing really interesting people and writing really amazing stories. And so I count myself lucky to be able to have interviewed this interesting person. And I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Natalie Krebs. All right, folks, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, This week I'm here in Northwest Arkansas in the home of one Natalie Krebs, who I guess I've known for a year or two. Uh, Been sitting here talking for like two hours beforehand, learning all sorts of stuff. But Natalie is a a writer, a journalist. Uh, She's an editor at Outdoor Life magazine. And thank you very much for having me here, Natalie. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jonathan. Absolutely. Absolutely. so, yeah, we've kind of been talking about all sorts of stuff, you know, perhaps heavier topics and we weren't recorded. But uh, I'd say, first of all, what's interesting to me is that we've both, I've been in Arkansas for almost 21 years. You've been here for just a couple of years, right? Yeah, almost two. Yeah. And, uh, and we, I think we got like eight years difference between us in age, but 
were actually like from like probably miles apart from each other in St. Louis. Uh, we grew up in neighborhoods that touch on like, like the Western border of my neighborhood would have like hit the neighborhood that you grew up in. Uh, did you, did you grow up going to that schnooks at, at Ladue Cross? Yeah. Sure so did. We, yeah. We went to the same grocery store. Uh, <laughs> I remember when they built that and it was, a. It was like, man, this is a nice grocery store. We're going to start going up here instead of running down to the, there used to be this grocery store called Nationals in uh, St. Louis. Anyway, but yeah, we're, so we're both from St. Louis, Missouri originally, which is a cool thing to talk about because St. Louis is a, an odd little place with uh, the way the neighborhoods are set up. And it's, it's just, you could never explain it to people if they weren't from there. But uh, yeah, it's just nice to know somebody who actually understands it. Um, but anyway, yeah, so we've, we're both on the board of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers here in Arkansas. Uh, I guess you much more than I, but, you know, we're both, uh, I guess, in the outdoor industry. Uh, and you've been an editor at Outdoor Life for how long? Mm, I started there full time in 2014, so almost eight years. Yeah, that's a long time. <laughs> that's a long time. <laughs> so, like, not long out of school, huh? No, I, yeah, I, uh, I graduated college in 2013, um, did some backpacking and traveling, and then I got a job at a restaurant downtown, uh, in a freelancing gig at Outdoor Life. And so as soon as I started working for OL full time, I moved to New York and I've only ever worked there like professionally out of college. So, oh, really? Yeah. That's pretty good. Man. Yeah. I guess technically I did a stint for Field and Stream for a little bit, but right, same company, same concept. Yeah, so that I was going to ask you about that. So those those two like legacy magazines are linked, right? Yeah, so we're sister publications is probably the best word for it is, you know, historically incredible rivals and at some point we were brought under the same parent company. Um and then at one point um we shared staff. Um so it's like that sort of competitiveness and or um companionship has evolved over the years so i did i think two years as their senior editor and now i'm back on outdoor life full-time okay and yeah what's your position in outdoor life senior deputy editor which is a position i didn't know existed <laughs> until i got it so um i it, it means i do a little bit of everything so uh did you go to journalism school i did uh yeah my degree is in magazine journalism okay so yeah i was going to ask you like do you consider yourself a a journalist because like the, the title of writer is very, very broad, right? Sure. Especially in a in an, a digital age, right? Mm -hmm. Where everyone has like a blog and so everyone's a writer. Yeah. You know, it's kind of the way I feel like everybody calls themselves a chef even if they never worked in a restaurant. Yeah. I Yeah, I don't use the word writer. I do quite a bit of writing. I edit writing and so I look at writing all day, but I, I typically will not call myself a writer. Um, I'll use the word, I'll use journalist or editor, reporter sometimes depending on what I'm working on. What uh, what do you think is the differentiation in, in that? I, I think it's because I spend less time writing than I should, uh, probably. Like, a lot of my day is spent um, doing all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll edit and assign, I'll assign and edit content to contributors like yourself, like we've mm -hmm. worked on stuff together before. Um, and in doing that, like I did very little writing, right? You're the writer and I'm working with you. Um, uh, or reporting, like I do so much of, um, I'm just wrapping up a story on uh, kind of trends of grizzly attacks um, 
in the West and like whether is that actually a trend or not, right? And I spent most of the time working on that story, calling people and talking to people and trying to like research and figure out all this stuff. And then once I did like 80% of the work, 20% of it was like writing it and weaving it together. And so for me, just saying writing, um, I don't know. I like, it just was not the bulk of what went into that written piece. So it's semantics. It's just, I, yeah. Well, uh, am I making sense? Yeah, no, you are. Okay. Squeeze those headphones on your head a little bit if you can. Uh, so, you know, like most of the stuff that I, I write is, I guess it would be like editorial, right? It's like, yeah, it's, it's it's just me talking about what I think, right? Yeah, it, like an essay. Yeah, it seems like what you're doing, though, is like more, uh, you don't seem to opine as much. It's more like documentation. Would you? Is that correct or Yeah, it, d- it depends on the assignment. Um, I have done, especially when I worked for Field and Stream, like they wanted more of those narrative essays, like storytelling from, you know, whatever, um, about hunting on my family farm or something like that. And for outdoor life, I do more, I do more reporting. Like that's what my background is more. Um, like I'm not a novelist or an essayist and I do like to do that stuff sometimes. And sometimes it's easier because I don't have to do a bunch of background work. Um, and I'm able to just kind of jot down a story or like, well, what's on my mind, but it's also, um, I don't know, less, uh, it consumes less of my day or like my time. Like I don't spend as much time thinking about it. Like I'll look at the page and I'll write that stuff down. But like when I'm working on say that grizzly story, it's like, it's in the back of my brain for like two weeks trying to think about what's actually going on. So I think it's just different for everybody. Um, uh, so now I'm going to delve into some like selfish stuff just so I can gather some information. So I, I, uh, I'd say like writing wise, like I struggle a lot with getting started. Right. Like mm-hmm. I just ruminate and ruminate and ruminate. Uh, and then I do a, I do, I mean, on a, maybe I shouldn't even tell you this, but like I do almost all of my writing, like in these long, like just right before I have to have it in block. Right. Like yeah. I think about it for a long time and then I just like force it out. Uh, that's, that's exactly what I do. Like I've been doing this for years and I still am like pushing deadlines. Like I pulled an alternative this week to finish writing that grizzly story. I was up until 5am. Like I'm a professional. I shouldn't be doing that. And I do the same. Do you think it's, do you think it's actually a bad thing? Uh, only sometimes in that, like there are true deadlines that exist for a reason in terms of like making sure, you know, our production staff isn't like scrambling to try and like take my copy and turn it into something useful. Right. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes when I delay on a deadline, I'm inconveniencing other people. Uh, but from a writing perspective, no, like I'm horrible procrastinator. And when I've given myself just a short window, like I'm finally forced to sit down and that's the only thing I'm focused on. So it generally works fine. It just is a stressful, it's a stressful way to do something. And then you also don't have as much time to like let it breathe and then go back and look at it. Right. Or maybe yeah. you do. I mean, maybe no, you write no, it no. all in one and then it, you do it a week before the deadline and then you look at it, but you, you made yourself sit there for, no, I don't do that. Okay. I, <laughs> that's, that's not what I do. <laughs> I like get it done. I proofread it. And then I'm like, Oh, this is it. Right. Yeah. 
uh, which is, I mean, that's how, I mean, that's how I've, anything I've ever written, that's how I've written it. And, you know, I think maybe, maybe that is what the flaw in it is, is that it's the stress from it. So, you know, like I've, I played music for a long time, you know, it's probably something we can get into here in a minute, but like, it's kind of how I learned to write is like writing lyrics, right? Mm. It's like even a, a a very astute comment you made on the first thing you edited for me, which is like, you know, I write in like a lyrical way, right? And it's, uh, I used to, I used to kind of work from this, this premise when I was younger that I had to, that there was like some nobility and suffering as like a way to produce art. Right. And Mm -hmm. I did that with like, kind of just like hard living, like not sleeping a lot, you know, and like drinking and smoking cigarettes and just whatever. Uh, and I don't do that stuff anymore, but I think that I did develop a association with, with like stress or angst Mm -hmm. as far as like, you know, creating, and that's something I'm trying to resolve in myself is I, you know, I, I kind of work on this path of like doing this professionally, right? Because mm-hmm. that doesn't, you know, there's there's a lot of, I mean, kind of to me, like the the big thing about being a grown up, which I I think I've maybe only considered myself for a very short amount of time is like, consistency right Mm -hmm. and so like relying on stress or struggle to produce stuff is not a recipe for consistency right Mm -hmm. uh i don't know that as a person i i'm i think i've got to have a level i just i've I've been doing it for so long that i've got to have a little bit of angst you know but yeah i think the the cortisol production from (laughs) the induced stress is that doesn't jive with having like small children either. Oh no. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the all I've been, man, look, I've been cranking out all nighters and it, it wrecks me. Cause, cause, cause then it's not a deal where I can just like go to sleep at six in the morning. Right. No, that's when everybody's up. Yeah. There's booties to be wiped. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Uh, but, uh, man, so I just went on this, like this writing tangent. Yeah. Uh, do you ever, is everything you write nonfiction or do you write any, do you write fiction at all? Um, I don't, not for work, no. Um, man, I probably haven't written fiction since like college or something. So, and I found that like, it's so much, I'm, I, I mean, I guess I could, but I'm inclined to like the real world is fascinating as it is. Mm-hmm. And like, there's so many cool stories and cool people out there and crazy shit that happens that. Um, I'm not just obligated to write about nonfiction. Like I find it fascinating. Um, so it's like, so far it's, it's very, um, fulfilling to just kind of focus on that. And there's elements of fiction that can come in. Like, you know, like sometimes you in a personal essay, that's a nonfiction essay. Like you may focus on elements that were not necessarily as big at the time, but like in, your memory or in retrospect or for the sake of the narrative, right? You like, you focus on them a little bit more. And so I do think there's an element of 
right? It's like a hunting story. There, like, there's fiction everywhere in hunting mm. stories that you hear, and so um, sometimes like that may creep in a little bit. But I wouldn't say that it's. Uh, I'm not. I don't fictionalize things. It's just like maybe a writing device of focusing on something a little bit more than maybe at the time was like as significant. Um, if that yeah. makes sense. No, that does. Uh, do you consider what you do? Uh, you consider what you do to be art? Oh no! I like that. Sounds very. Um, Try try and take the perceived pretense out of it. Okay, I mean, I'm, I mean, I get it, but yeah, I like. I wouldn't describe. Do you, do you think it's an artistic pursuit? Is that easier? Oh, uh, yeah, I would say that there's definitely some artistic stuff around it, and like I I enjoyed that part. Like I I got into journalism because I did a lot of photography, and I wanted to study photojournalism. That wasn't an option at my J school, uh, and so I ended up doing magazine. But like, you very much have to work with. Um, uh, like we work with an art team and I work with like crafting words is artistic to a certain point. Like if you, if you don't care about um, like the final package of a magazine, like that, that all you're pursuing like a final package that should be visually appealing and have content that is um, interesting and engaging and like weaving all of that together um, whether it's like a print magazine, which we're not currently doing, or whether it's like a story you read online, like there's definitely, um, if there wasn't any art to it, it would be pretty boring and bland, I think, at the end of the day. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, you, I think so. Do you feel like when you're writing like a personal essay, like, does that feel artistic to you? Uh, yeah, so, I mean maybe this is a good opportunity. I've, you know, I've been wrestling with this like personally a lot. Uh, cause especially like the last couple of years, there's been, uh, there's, there's kind of been like a lot of people, you know, kind of trying to describe what I'm doing or who I am. Right. There's like people have written some stories. There's been like some, you know, okay. e every video is a film about now. you. Like, about yeah. Me, right? Okay. Which is, which is weird, but, uh, I mean, like I really, really, yeah, more so than I even want to admit, I've really been like struggling and ruminating with this. Right. And I think that ultimately, you know, at the risk of sounding arrogant, cause there's been, you know, at first what people wanted to describe me as was like a guide, right? Like this is this guide. And it was probably interesting to people because they're like, this is a, brown person who's a hunting guide or something right mm. and then they bring the then you know you start oh well no he's a chef he's a wild game chef which i've never called myself a chef i've worked professionally in food for a long long time i think chef is a specific moniker that is really more indicative of running a kitchen staff mm. professionally so i think that most of the people that are calling themselves chefs aren't and I don't think that because you got yourself a monogrammed uh, chef's white jacket that makes you a chef. I've never worn one of those in my mm -hmm. entire life. And I don't think I'm the best cook in the world, but I could. You cook. can cook. I could cook circles around a lot of these people that are calling themselves that, right? But so, again, at the risk of sounding arrogant, I think that what I ultimately am, and this is like what songwriting was, this is my approach to food. These are... Uh, 
these are like philosophical examinations for me, right? And, uh, and you know, and like that's something that no one says they are because you sound like a pompous ass. But like I would say probably like that's kind of what I am is like a philosopher, right? <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's super self-indulgent, you know? Uh, but I think that's what I'm doing. That's what writing songs always was for me. That's what I'm doing when I'm cooking, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm thinking about people and how this stuff goes together and how to build these like human connections. Uh, and so that's long-winded, but yeah, I think that I'm when I'm putting words together, I'm looking at that as uh, as like an artistic expression. It's uh, honestly like I'm I'm writing in this these longer formats now, but still kind of with the same mindset that I approached writing song lyrics to, right? Hmm. Uh, and like I think the easiest way to see that is in uh, is in like the way I put words, I put words together like in a rhythmic way. Cause that's how I taught myself to write, mm. you know? So like, I love onomatopoeia, mm-hmm. right? We talked about like some, some words and like the way they sound and like they're satisfying, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and so I, I try and put stuff together in that way. Now, then I would say formatively, of the in the last couple of years the first edit you gave me really changed how I was was writing uh because I realized I was leaning into that like some of that lyricism too much right and I I had to root it a little bit more uh what do you remember what edit specifically yeah you said uh you often write very poetically which is great but we need some more concrete examples. Hmm. I think that's almost verbatim what you said. Uh, (laughs) That does sound somewhat familiar. I've probably thought about it seriously every single day since then. Really? Every time I've written anything since then, I've thought about that. Hmm. Uh, And I try and, I try and go back and like, I'll write some, what's starting to happen is it's getting easier because I've done it enough now that I'm, I'm getting used to it. But and this is part of the procrastination part is that I, I want to write like everything I write. I want it to have so much weight, Hmm. you know? And it's, uh, I think it was like, I was hobbling myself. Right. I was trying, I was trying to force impact instead of, you know, like, allowing it to come from the entirety of the thing. It's like, you know, no one wants to be bludgeoned line after line after line. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, that was, that was my answer to if I think it's art. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. Like one of the things that, and maybe this is like a general thing people say about writing or it's something like, I can't remember this is a conversation that I've had with people, but to me it feels like therapy in a certain way. Mm. Like I've talked to um, Dave Hurteau is the executive editor uh, over at film stream who I worked with for a couple of years. Um, one of, if not the best editor I've worked with when it comes to like narrative essay type stuff. Um, and it truly is like, 
he's encouraged me and other writers to like dig down and get at the heart of issues. Uh, And really like, you know, if something's not working on paper, like he'll call you up and you'll just talk about it. And it's truly like he jokes that he is the therapist for all the field and stream writers, like people who've written books, like call up Dave to talk about what it is they're really trying to get at the heart of in their stories and their essays and, um, and how, to like figure that out and not just figure it out for yourselves, but to make it relatable to the people who are reading um, what you're writing. So it's like, cause it's fine if it's not going to go anywhere you're writing, but like you're writing for an audience a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Right. And you don't want to necessarily just talk at them. You want to have, it's sort of like a one-sided conversation, right? You're inviting them to like, see what it is that you're talking about. And like, for whatever reason, that's like a very, uh, therapeutic process I guess um is kind of like how how I think about it in one quarter of my mind depending on what I'm writing and that's not that doesn't mean it's mutually exclusive from art like what you're talking about so now I'm just rambling (laughs) no 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 (laughs) but this is I mean this is super beneficial for me personally I've you know so I've always kind of uh worked from this premise which is something I learned from friends of mine uh that are visual artists like, you know, painters and yeah, I think the dude I associate this most with is like a guy who was like a painter. Uh, and I don't know, I think maybe he got this from Picasso, but it's like the idea that like the more personal you make something, the more universal it becomes, right? Mm. The more, the more, uh, identifiable it becomes mm-hmm. as just like a human experience. But I think there is a danger in that. So, like, to do that, that uh, that necessitates, like, a level of vulnerability, right? Oh, absolutely. But there, you know, it's like the overshare, mm-hmm. right? Like, no one wants to be around that person, right? Like, yeah. Like, you, you want to talk about screwing up a nice brunch, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Like, someone coming there with all their damn problems and, you know, yeah. you know, my dad didn't understand me and everything else. Uh, and look, I've been, I've been guilty of this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I guess with writing, like, the benefit of, to me, the benefit of writing is that you do have time. Like, you can, write something Mm -hmm. and you can have this kind of emotional vomitorium. Right. Yeah. And then be like, that all needs to go away. Yeah. Like, and, and sometimes it does feel good to like get it out, but that doesn't mean you need to, to give that to everybody. Right. Totally. And that's where like, um, you know, that's where editing comes in. Like everybody, even editors need editors, Mm -hmm. you know? So like using continuing to talk about the Dave Hurtow example is like, you know, you just stuff as much stuff as you can, try and get everything on the page and get it out there and see if you can hit what it is that you're after. And then you can trim away at the stuff, at the oversharing or the boring stuff or the thing that's maybe interesting but irrelevant. And, like, you don't want to lose it, but then once you cut it away, you're like, oh, the final product is better. Um, so totally. But you also, like, if you're oversharing while you're writing something, that doesn't necessarily have to end up on the final page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, and sometimes that like helps you figure out what you're trying to get after, but you just have the luxury of not having shared it with everybody to get there because you're writing on a page rather than like having a conversation at brunch with people. So. Yeah, uh, it's <clears throat> and there is 
there's like a a level of self-determination to it right hmm. because you're not you know i feel like with with more visual mediums like film like everything is on film right now everything is recorded i mean this podcast is recorded right yeah there's you know i mean this podcast gets just very 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 slightly edited and i mean like almost none right because mm. it's that's part of the appeal right like it's supposed to be this fly on the wall conversation like people like that i don't have the bandwidth or energy or budget to have like this super highly produced and edited deal sure but like i do tell everybody like at the beginning like look if you say something that you don't want out there like let me know because yeah. i'm not tr i'm not trying to play gotcha with anybody right uh i think that also makes people more comfortable and like then they can but still like most people aren't going to say anything like they're not going to uh implicate themselves in a crime yeah right hopefully <laughs> uh please don't do that on this podcast uh all right so i'll change directions a little bit so you're saying you've worked professionally for either outdoor life or field and stream is so is so i would imagine then rather that like almost the entirety of your professional writing is within like a hunting fishing slash outdoor space yeah yeah that's right um yeah conservation like some of it strays into like you know i geek out about invasive species so i'll like go off on that tangent occasionally but yeah it's all solidly something you would find on outdoorlife.com or field and stream which is hunting fishing conservation uh outdoor life has gone like almost entirely digital at this point, right? Mm -hmm. And field and stream too. And part of it is, um, you know, we've been, Outdoor Life's been around since 1898 and we have had a magazine, like that's what we started mm -hmm. as. Um, and we had that up and up through uh, like late 2020 with the pandemic, like COVID hit and we just had, um, it's expensive to produce a national magazine with a subscriber base that was as big as Outdoor Life. Um, and so it's, uh, we're not in print production right now. Do you do you think that there's a uh, do you think there's a differentiation and <clears throat> excuse me and this this is I'm actually asking you I'm not giving an opinion on this do you think sure. there's a differentiation in the impact of like a, a periodical uh, would a magazine be a periodical is yeah that, okay it comes out periodically <clears throat> yeah there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there's a difference in the impact of it uh, being in a digital format or like maybe in a bigger question is like, do you think that, uh, do you think that like the written word impacts differently when it's consumed in a digital manner as opposed to like, you know, paper? Yeah, I think it's, I think it just depends. Um, one on the person who's reading, like, you know, we've got some old crusty readers who are 70 and will never read out life.com because they got their magazine for decades and that's how they wanted to read it. And it's not the same for them to read it on a website with ads. Mm -hmm. Um, and I totally get that. But, um, I think that if you're flexible and open-minded, like you can still, I've read plenty of stuff digitally. Um, like I consume a lot of articles and, uh, it just depends on whether you're open to it or not. Um, and then the other thing too, is like, it's just, um, without having the print product, we're able to 
dive into more digital stories. We're able to include more photos. We're able to start doing podcasts and like talk to people and get the voices of the people who are in those stories on the written page that like, you know, get sound bites of them. And then you're able to experience stories in a different way because we're not doing that traditional periodical. Um, so yeah, I think it just depends. And I think a lot of times it's just the story itself, whether it speaks to you or not, which is a roundabout way of answering your question, I think. No, it's an answer. It's, yeah. it's, it's succinct. No. Uh, I'll tell you what, the piece you wrote last year about that like really tragic situation in that Tennessee duck blind, uh, and maybe I told you this, maybe I didn't, but uh, like I, I feel like that was, and you probably see the analytics on it but just like the people that i encounter like i was at a camp last spring and every single person in that entire camp had read that article mm. like we were sitting in a garage talking about it mm. you know and i like flexed on like, oh yeah man i know that that's my editor but uh and that honestly that might have been the first thing that i had read that you had written mm. but uh that would that would maybe be just kind of interesting uh and may, maybe like briefly describe what we're talking about like i'm not trying to get into like tragedy pornography or anything but like it was like a really sad situation uh i think it got misinterpreted by people because especially southern duck hunting is is not just perceived as such but is so pugilistic that i think it got misinterpreted as something like that and it just really kind of ended up being this sad situation but the uh I was really fascinated in the information gathering on a piece like that. Mm. Uh, cause, and, cause that's when I was like, Oh, Natalie's a journalist. Like this is a, this is journalism. Mm. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. And you kind of just mentioned this, but it was like at the time when it happened, there was a shooting on real foot Lake in Tennessee where um, two, two, younger duck hunters, you know, in their early 20s, mid 20s, um, were shot and killed. And there was a lot of confusion over what happened. And people thought it was over a duck. And um, I ended up, you know, my editor assigned like, hey, go figure out what happened. Like, let's try and um, bring to light what actually is the issue as opposed to like all these rumors around it. Um, so I did, I went to Tennessee twice, I think it was five days the first time, five days the next time. And I tried to talk to everybody on every side of the issue that I could to figure out as best we know what happened. Um, and that was, that was some of the most intense, uh, it wasn't, it was the most intense reporting that I've done since I started working at Outdoor Life. I did some, um, kind of criminal justice investigating in college. Um, and this was the closest to that, that I had done just in the hunting outdoor setting. Um, yeah, and that was that was very very reporting heavy, kind of like what I was talking about earlier. Is like it wasn't the writing so much; it was talking to people about their experiences and their perspectives. So, uh, did you see? I mean, did it? Did you see? Like, did a ton of people read that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was one of our it was one of our biggest stories last year, twenty twenty one, and I think it was, um, you know, because we have it was something that everybody heard about, you know, duck. I mean, I don't know if you know better than I do. Was there a duck hunter who you talked to who hadn't heard about what happened 
um, maybe they didn't know what happened, but they had heard that something yeah, that had happened. Yeah, someone died on real foot. Yeah, right. probably everybody yeah. had, yeah. You know, it was, the duck hunting community is relatively small. I mean, mm-hmm. there's not that many duck hunters in the, I forget what the number is, but it's, you know, it's like less than 9 million um, in the U.S. or something right now. I mean, it's closer to like 4 million. Don't quote me on any of these numbers. Yeah, but, sure. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, like the hunting community, even though there's a lot of hunters out there, like it's a small community and, you know, people hear about stuff like that. So yeah, it was, it was widely read and, and hopefully what we were trying to do with that was not, yeah, capitalize on a lot of like the true crime stuff that's out there, right? Like, you know, people being voyeurs over something like tragic that didn't happen to them that they can just consume but like really try and and figure out what happened for the sake of like those families and the people who were involved who like had the world think that x happened and really y happened was kind of the goal of that so yeah and just because there's probably people that listen to this and they don't actually know like it it kind of ended up being that there was like a an older man like the suspicion is is that he was like experiencing like dementia Right. And and that was the conclusion of investigators, right? Like law enforcement and his, like his, his widow would say that that was not the case. Um, So there's still, there's still a lot of unknowns about it, but yeah, that, that's the conclusion um, that a lot of people had that I spoke to. Okay. And then, and then he actually, he ended up passing away from like exposure out there, right? Yeah. So he was, um, he was left on the lake. Um, there was one survivor and he was trying to get his wounded, um, you know, buddies back to the bank and, um, uh, ended up throwing the old man out of the boat, you know, in January in like a swampy lake with like wetlands all around. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was not, uh, search and rescue or actually he was, he was spotted by another duck hunter like a week later. Um, and you oh, know, okay. did not, did not survive. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, Hey, that was, that was, it was a really fantastic piece of writing. And like I said, it was, uh, I think it was like impactful because I think a lot of people that maybe don't read that much read that, Mm. you know? Uh, so I kind of brought it down a little bit. Mm. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. No, I I asked about it. (laughs) Uh, I'm thinking about how to the direction to go on this. Uh, who are who are some of your favorite writers? Like who are who are the people that you are either like we're all like inspired by or like looking at other people as like an example or something or like just the folks that you like really like to read their stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in general or in the hunting space? No, just in general. Hmm. Um. I I read all kinds of stuff. Um, Like I do, even though I don't write a lot of fiction uh, or write any fiction, I read a lot of fiction. I read, sorry, you might have to actually edit this part because now I'm like actually thinking about this. I'll give a hunting example. So for example, uh, like Will Brantley, who is the hunting editor for Field and Stream, um, you know, I, I'd read routing copy for everybody, and like any time one of his pieces came across my desk, I was always excited to read it because mm-hmm. he's a he's a knowledgeable guy and he's funny. Like his stuff is just fucking funny, and like I enjoy reading um, reading a lot of the stuff that he writes about because I 
I'm not just entertained, but I usually learn something. Um, and so that's something I always enjoy reading. Um, man, I don't know. I can't think of like, I don't have, I don't have a favorite author like tucked away in my back pocket where I'm like, Oh yes. Like, let me tell you about this person's whole. Is Uh, there, is there a, like a book or a piece that you was super impactful for you? mm, Well, yeah, it's an old example. Uh, West with the night by Beryl Markham. Um, have you read this? So she, um, I think she wrote it maybe in like the early 1900s. Um, and this actually, some of this goes back to like what we were talking about, about hunting uh, Africa earlier. Like there's definitely yeah. some colonialism and some like background issues on it. But she she grew up, uh, I think her, um, she grew up in Kenya um, and she ended up teaching herself to fly. She was like a pilot and she would like scout for elephants, um, for hunters and she ended up, uh, like, she rode horses, she hunted, like, she did all this crazy shit. She just had a crazy life at a time when, like, women did not have crazy lives. Um, and she wrote a memoir about it. And I came across this in high school. It was like, this woman is badass. Like, I am learning a lot from her, both from, like, a, how she um, how she thinks about things, but also, like, her writing itself. Like, you know, people accused her of not having written it herself, like Hemingway was jealous of Beryl Markham's memoir, uh, as an example. Um, so I don't know, that's something that I reread like every 10 years or so. Um, you know, and I learned something different from it every time, but it was nonfiction. Um, like John Krakauer is another example. Um, he wrote Into Thin Air and, uh, uh, I guess Into the Wild about Chris McCandless, um, the kid who disappeared in Alaska. Um, and that is an intersection of like storytelling with nonfiction reporting that like I, I usually enjoy reading his stuff as well. Uh, that actually kind of spawned two questions for me. So one would be, you know, and we talked about this a little bit too with like, you know, I, I'm almost hesitate to, to say the term, but like cancel culture, or like someone, you know, when I was in college, I had this uh, professor that was like, we just rail against like revisionist, his idea Mm. of revisionist history. Right. But so say a dude like Bukowski, right. Or you, you mentioned Hemingway, right. Mm -hmm. Like these are people that are very firmly cemented in like uh, the American or like Western uh, literary uh, lexicon. Mm -hmm. Right. Who have, behaviors and lifestyles that would be like real problematic right like and i probably am a little more aware of some of bukowski's flaws but like i think it you could most people would bukowski ain't nobody that you want like dating your sister or your daughter right (laughs) yeah (laughs) like uh and then like with Hemingway, and you know i don't know a ton but i think there's probably some stuff with Hemingway Hemingway that would be like problematic right Mm -hmm. In, in a modern society so with those realizations, does that, and maybe this isn't a fair question to ask you, but does it, uh, does it renegotiate their literary impact to you in any way? Mm. I think, I mean, for me, it's like, I, I mean, I haven't honestly read that much Hemingway or anything like that. Like, it's not like, 
I think it's it's fine to like consume that stuff with like perspective on it, right? Like mm. I don't think that we need to like burn all the Hemingway books, uh, you know, because he was <laughs> shitty to women. You know, it's like I think that um I think it's like whether, I don't know, like I just don't read that much Hemingway because it's, it's not that interesting to me. But I still like have, as long, like I'm educated for the most part, like I have a general picture of like the context of that legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's still stuff to be learned from it, um, which is maybe a roundabout way of your question. But like using Beryl Markham as an example, like she she was like a serial adulterer. Um, like she had all kinds of affairs, none of which are mentioned in her memoir, right? But, like, learning that about her outside, like, kind of contextualizes a little bit of her memoir. And, like, I'm like, yeah, like, the stuff she was doing was crazy at the time. And so, like, it it really doesn't surprise me that she kind of, like, had all these affairs. Like, that seems like the person she was. And, like, that doesn't mean, like, I'm cool with it. But it's also, like, I've learned something about that writer and, like, what her life looked like. Um, and well, I, you know, also, like, you know, to push back against that maybe a little bit is, yeah. like, as a woman at that time, there's probably also an element of like uh, rebelliousness or oh, something yeah. to an activity or, or it sounds like activities yeah. like that, right? Yeah. And it's like, um, you know, like that was standard, like men did that all the time at the time. And now it's like commentary on her is like, oh, she was like this like loose woman. It's like, you know, it, it's all, I'm not doing a very good job of articulating this. I just think that it's to your point about it was a different time uh, of like shit happened and we're able to have like perspective and like be a little bit more informed about the context of a lot of that work now. And I think, I think that's um, useful information to have if you're going to, you know, sit down and read a Hemingway book, you know? Yeah. I do think too, there's, and this is a bigger, this is a bigger commentary. I, I think there's a difference I hear a lot, or I've often heard this idea of like, you know, that he was a man of his time, right? Mm-hmm. And and I I do I understand that. Like we've been we were talking about that, just like in how stuff has changed within you know my lifetime or our lifetimes, right? But I think there's a difference between understanding that there is a social trajectory that changes and evolves and excusing uh just you know outright uh excusing outright like bad behavior right Mm -hmm. like uh and i've kind of made this point before but like the reason that shakespeare right is still relevant right is because of this idea that like the human condition remains a human condition Mm -hmm. right the same joys and pains and fears and whatever that you know, this guy had and the people surrounding him and, you know, hundreds of years ago in, uh, in Western Europe had, those are like the same fears and just like human emotions that an Aborigine in pre-colonial, uh, Australia would have, or, you know, someone in Timbuktu or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. By the same token, that means that like, the same pains and misery and stuff that is felt by people today were experienced by people 200 years ago or 50 years ago or whatever. So it's a weird way. Like I do think we have to kind of like negotiate all of this with, like you said, perspective. Uh, 
and I'm you know I'm not a book burner by any means mm-hmm. like uh but there there is stuff that I've read or consumed in the past that I've I've decided to like leave it there hmm. right and just maybe not maybe not go out of my way to condemn it but also also not like excuse it or or say that you know maybe it's it's time for impact on me has mm-hmm. has run its course right mm-hmm. uh, which i think is hopefully a healthy perspective to have like uh dude i'll tell you i'll tell you something that happened like a year ago it was super embarrassing is uh i was at a friend's house and they're they're like younger than i am so they're like in their late 20s and i'm talking about this movie that I watched like probably a hundred times in my life is this movie called heavyweights. It oh, was, I'm, I'm familiar okay. with it. I can quote heavyweights. Oh dude. Embarrassingly. We, so we could go back and forth. Bears love honey. Oh, look uh, at deli meat. <laughs> body system. Uh, so anyway, I'm talking about this movie and like I watched it over and over. We had it like on a VHS tape and I watched it over and over again with my sister and my little brother. And we used to quote it all the time. And I just have like so many good memories about this, right? It's like Judd Apatow's first film, Ben Stiller's in it. It's like Dodgeball for kids on a level. Yeah, it's it's where the character that Ben Stiller played in Dodgeball came from. It's yes. got Tur- Tony Perkis, right? Mm-hmm. And it's got uh it's got Ben Stiller's parents in it. It's okay, so I'm at these people's house, right? And we're watching I'm like, man, we should watch this movie. We're watching this movie, right? Uh my friend whose house I'm at is uh, of indigenous American descent, right? She's a Native American. Didn't even occur to me that when they get to the end of that movie and they mm. do that race, that like one whole collection of these kids is wearing dresses up in buckskins and like feathers, feathered headbands. And man, I was horrified. And I'm telling this story on purpose because I do want to have like grace with people as we you know, as we hopefully evolve. Right. And man, I was, I was just like horrified. And I was like, Oh my God, dude. I was like, I'm so sorry. I like stopped it. I was like, good God. Um, and she was like super cool and super gracious with me. And I think she like knows who I am as a person, but man, I feel, I felt like a giant a-hole. Right. Uh, and it gave me some perspective with like, slights that I might encounter from people because Mm. like this is something I've, I'm not joking. I've probably watched it a hundred times and it just like, it was a blind spot in Mm. my interpretation. Right. Uh, and so like it's, I even want to be careful with like how much I talk about how much I like the movie. Cause now I'm like, Oh man. Uh, and I don't think it ruins, it doesn't ruin my memories of the film, but you know, maybe that's not a film that I'm going to like show my kids. Or if I do, it's like, you know, all these Disney films now. Yeah. They have like a uh, disclaimer. They have a disclaimer at the beginning. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, I think it does when you have like some different perspectives or hopefully like a broader perspective, it changes the way that you interpret information uh, or something that, you know, like these things we're talking about writing films, yeah. right? These are, this is art, right? And art is a reflection of like the zeitgeist, right? And the zeitgeist by its nature is an undulating, changing thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to not be, uh, 
we have to allow ourselves to be that way as well, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, you can't you can't interpret something that's undulating and changing and is ephemeral if you maintain like a stagnant form, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I would say an example, like I know I just mentioned Beryl Markham a bunch of times, but like when I first read that book, I didn't have like much perspective on like the colonialism surrounding like why she was sure. living in Kenya and this white woman who like, you know, is able to like end up having racehorses and like fly around in a plane. Like, and then upon the second reading, I was able to add more, like I was more educated about stuff. I was able to contextualize a lot of that. Um, and I still find value in that account, but like, I also like, I saw it in a totally different way by revisiting it. Um, and if I had just said like, oh, I'm not touching this, then like maybe I wouldn't have had a more, um, uh, a different perspective on it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like too, that you took, uh, I mean, am I overstating it to say that it sounds like you, you found it to be like an empower, a personally empowering tale? Yeah. Like I, yeah, in some ways, I guess, like I, I mean, you're talking about her being like a badass lady, right? I yeah. think that, you know, many people would, can, I would consider you to be like a pretty badass lady. Like you do a bunch of really cool stuff. You're like super athletic, you know, you're tough, you're resilient, and you're in situations, I imagine, constantly where you're one of the only uh, females around, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you like don't just hold your own. You, uh, you know, you're interpreted as like uh, an, an equal and a leader and all that stuff. So, uh, and I say that with the understanding that's, that shit's probably hard to hear, right? Uh, <laughs> but... Some critter just ran across there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, did did you find, so if you read it like in high school, did you find it to be like kind of formative, like in how you viewed yourself? Uh, it certainly didn't hurt. Yeah, like it probably was a contributing factor. Like I remember around the time I read it, um, I was learning like, you know, AP US history about uh, Levittown's and like the expansion of suburbia and like how... Uh, the U.S. changed, and I was like, I I don't want to like, I don't want to just like go from college to like trying to have a house in the suburbs and like live a, like a quiet suburban life, and like a lot of that was around the time I was reading. So like, it's a lot of different things. Uh, you don't you don't aspire to leave lead a life of quiet desperation. <laughs> uh, it's more like loud angsty desperation. Uh, not really. You can cut that part. Um, <laughs> Please remove that from the podcast, Jonathan, while you're editing this later. Um, No, like I don't, yeah, I don't, it was definitely inspirational of being able to have examples of someone doing cool shit and writing about it and being able to live a life that was somewhat unapologetic um, because like it was the right one for her as an example. So yeah, like I, I, a lot of the story, like fiction I read as a kid had like strong female characters who did stuff out of the gender norm. Um, and I think I consumed enough and like, uh, interacted with enough women, um, not a ton, but enough women, like when I was growing up that that helped shaped like where I wanted to go with my life and, uh, how I wanted to live it, which is like how I wanted to. (laughs) So that's what I'm currently doing, which is pretty cool. Do you feel like you're, you feel like you're right now that you're living the life you want to live? Pretty much. Like I can't. I can't complain at all about my life. Like I have a job that's incredible that I love, which allows me to go places I would never go. And not just like, you know, wild, remote, beautiful places, but like 
you know, using the real foot example, Northwest Tennessee to a small town to talk to people about their lives and like what they think about things. Um, I've, I've been able to go places and meet the people who live there and get their perspectives on stuff. So it's not that I think I'm so cool. It's that, which I don't like, I think that I'm able to do stuff that puts me in contact with interesting people. And I'm able to learn about so many different lives and livelihoods that I would not otherwise. And like that, that enriches my personal life. And so like, basically, it's just, I I get to do that for a living and personally, uh, and I'm able to kind of be flexible about where I go and who I spend my time with. And like that, that to me is really interesting. Like that is a fulfilling life. Um, like the flex, the flexibility. Yeah. Of like, for example, I, I stayed with a friend in Utah for a month in February. Like I drove out there with my dog and I hunted and I mean, I still worked. I worked remotely. I mean, if I have my laptop in service, I can work. Uh, but I was able to go explore new places and like do what I wanted for the month of February, uh, because of the way that I've arranged my life. Um, and that's, that's awesome. So. Yeah, no, I've, uh, which, which again is not to like, I'm not trying to shit on anybody who like has an awesome life, like in the suburbs. I mean, also like I do currently live in the suburbs, so it's not like I, I know I caught that. Yeah. It's not, it's not (laughs) like I, you know, my perspective has changed on like where I was in high school and like how to shape a life that I like. And like, I'm not, um, yeah, no, I, I don't, I would never condemn somebody for like having the life that they want to have. And like, that just looks different for different people. Yeah. I, I get, I, I get why you're backtracking on that, but I I don't think that anyone would have interpreted it that way. I think that there's, uh, like, like we talked about this before we started recording, right? Like I have, I have prioritized in my life, uh, self-determination, like pretty much above all things. Right. And, the there's a trade-off on that right because like self-determination means that uh you get to fail right you get to screw up you get to fall on your ass a lot right mm-hmm. you're rem- in some ways you're or maybe that's not totally true the way that i've done it <laughs> is, <laughs> is that i've i've put myself in a lot of situations where it like my my failure is is part of that, right? Like I, I've kind of made a life where I get myself to like 80% of prepared for something. And then I try and grit my way through, like I try and rise to the occasion for the rest of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'd say 50% of the time it works out and 50% of the time it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Now I think it's, it's resulted in like building some capability in me. Right. Uh, or it's like how Herring said, like it makes you starve proof, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm not worried. Like I'll always be able to feed myself, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but I do think that there is a, again, it's not a, a condemnation or a diminishing of anyone with a quote unquote more con- conventional lifestyle. But I do think that there's a benefit to to risk taking in life. Right. And like you're describing it as flexibility, but I think you could also describe it as like risk taking because you know, like 
you're putting your you're repeatedly putting yourselves in situations where there's got to be an element of discomfort, right? Like mm. going to a small town and trying to like cold call approach people who have lived through a tragic situation recently recently is uh unless you are just a person with like you're a psychopath with no empathy or mm -hmm. <laughs> emotional connection to other human beings is going I would imagine is going to be like uncomfortable and you're going to have to like you know kind of screw your courage to the post a little bit and then try and find the way to negotiate the way you're presenting yourself to people to get the reaction that you need or want, right? Yeah, that is a that is a very uh, apt description and like insight into also like how I personally approach it. Like I am not that it's it makes me very anxious and nervous to like you know call somebody up. Like I have to I have to <laughs> I do I have to like get the uh, the courage to like call somebody uh, about that sometimes uh, and let historically like I. In high school, like I never would have envisioned like me doing that because I was so, um, uh, like socially uncomfortable. Like I have only recently gotten like more comfortable, like talking to people and stuff like, and it's trial by fire. It's like, I just had to learn to do that. And like journalism has forced me to, um, be better at that and like be, um, be able to interact with people more and understand where they're coming from and understand how I'm presenting myself to them. And I don't do it right all the time. Like I still screw this stuff up all the time, but I have gotten better at it uh, to the extent that it allows me to like, yeah, meet people from all different, all different places. And like, uh, yeah. Um, if that makes sense. No, it does. What, what you said was a very good description of trying to approach that situation a lot. Um, and it still scares me sometimes and I do it anyway, <laughs> uh, because the reward is, um, uh, or the outcome or like, you know, I usually feel better for having done it. It's just like, that's a man, that's a hell of a, that's a hell of a life skill. And I, I am, I'm still figuring it out. Like I'm not, I'm not an expert at it and it, yeah. But how do you reckon with, with failure? Right. So like you said, like I still mess it up all the time. Right. And so I kind of thought like that could be interpreted as just like this normal human thing we do where we like kind of try and diminish ourselves a little bit when we feel like we're sounding too egotistical. But like I'm going to interpret it as like an honest statement, like you still mess up, you still fall short. Right. So like how do you and I guess what I really mean is do you find yourself to be a person who's who like wallows in it or are you able to kind of shrug it off and get back? I, I'm generally able to shrug it off. Um, and it depends on the stakes, right? Like that, the real foot story is an example of very high stakes. Um, and everybody that I talked to, I, I was able to talk to them and, they, they spoke to me and they were kind to me from like all different sides of that story. And there was only one person who I had to like track down to find where he was working and try and ask him questions. And he was like, I just don't want to talk to you. And like, that's not a, uh, the way that I'm able to try and reconcile is it. It's not a personal rejection. It's not that he doesn't want to talk to me. It's he doesn't want to talk to me for the stuff that I need to talk to him about to tell like this story. So it's like, it helps for when I get those refusals to like 
be reminded of the context of them um, and like wh what it is about it um, that is maybe the issue. And then also it's like, well, how did I approach it? Like, how was I like a kind person to him? Did I like give him the the full explanation of like why this is important? Um, so in that instance, like that was like, you know, you will run into people where like you can do everything right and they're still not going to want to talk to me about something. Um, so recognizing that or um, where I did truly like, did I do a, a bad job of explaining this? Um, like even on this podcast, like I'm still like thinking about like, oh, I could have said that 27 times better than I actually said it. Um, and but did I get like the the heart of what I'm trying to convey across? I'm kidding. I'm getting a little like theoretical here, but I don't know if any of that. No. Makes so sense. like I would, that does make sense. I appreciate the response. <laughs> I would, uh, I would offer you the commentary that I think you have absolutely gotten the heart of what you're trying to communicate across. Uh, and you know, I would, man, I kind of, I had some, I was kind of like rolling around some kind of like a few kind of questions that I think now would be a little cliched. So like maybe I'll just kind of wrap it up with this. What, uh, if you're comfortable uh, answering this. So like we've kind of established, right? Like you have, you've got a, like a really cool life. You're traveling around constantly. You have a lot of flexibility in your schedule you have a lot uh, you know just like cool opportunities like you i mean i can tell by looking at uh the euro mounts on your walls you know that you have you've experienced tons of stuff that for a lot of people would be like once in a lifetime hunts right mm -hmm. like just cool stuff i mean hell i'm the last couple of years i've gotten to do some crazy stuff right uh so and I'm, I'm asking you this because I I have an inclination uh, just from listening to you that, you know, so for a lot of people, they might look at like your life, right? Mm -hmm. Or again, like some of the stuff I'm doing, right? And be mm -hmm. like, they've made it, right? Like, how could it possibly be better? I can tell you personally, lots of things could be better. <laughs> <laughs> lots of things. But... Uh, so you've got this cool job, you've got like a lovely house, you do all these like rad things. What do you aspire to, right? Because I, I, I suspect that you're not a person who would be like, I've reached the pinnacle of my aspiration and so I just want to maintain this until I'm too old to do this. Uh, that's an interesting question. I, I think... I aspire to learn, like, I feel like I don't, I've done cool things, but like, there's so much stuff that I learn. Like I learn something new, every story I report on, um, and every person that I talk to and the stuff that I want to learn is I just want to learn more. And I want to everything from like, right. Being a better turkey hunter and elk hunter, right. Or like a duck caller. Like there's a, I do a wide variety of stuff, but it's sort of like the whole, uh, like jack of all trades, master of none, um, kind of concept. And there's like, I can't remember it, but there's like another verse to that, that is essentially like, it concludes that the jack of all trades, right. Has it yeah, better. better. You, do you know it? Do, uh, can you I can't, recite it right here? I can't remember. Wait, uh, 
A jack of all trades, but a master of none. I don't know why I just said that. Like I, I can remember it. <laughs> Maybe I, you're going to. I you don't. Can... I don't remember. But yeah, the conclusion is that it's better. It's basically that it's better to be familiar with lots of stuff than to be a specialist. Specialist. Right? Yeah. Um, it. But I just, you know, which is cool. Like I know a little bit about of a lot of different facets of using the honey morals as an mm-hmm. example or reporting or whatever you want to talk about, but there's so much that I don't know or I'm not an expert on. And like a lot of that stuff fascinates me. Like I love backcountry hunting and like, I want to do more of it and get better at it and like be able to, uh, yeah, just be more confident and knowledgeable in those situations. So there's a lot of experiences that I haven't had, um, because I don't know about them or like, I don't know enough to like put myself in that situation yet. Um, so yeah, I think I just aspire to keep, um, expanding on that knowledge base and report on more stories that I don't even know exist yet or people that I don't know about, uh, which is maybe cliche, but like, that's kind of what I'm hungry for right now is to just like keep doing this. And it's not because it maintains my current lifestyle. It's because it expands it. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. Okay. (laughs) That's a good answer, man. Uh, Well, shoot, man, I think that's probably a a good place to to end it. Uh, To end our therapy session. (laughs) Yeah, I'm telling you, man. I've, uh, (laughs) you know, you're just sitting there talking about like, oh, I could have said all these things, could have said these things better, right? And I was just sitting here being like, dude, did I just call myself a philosopher? This freaking podcast. <laughs> well, this is the reason that I write is because I can go back and edit all the stupid shit that I put on the page so that I just like word vomited out and then I can remove it and then present this like polished version so that I don't have to, people yeah. don't have to listen to me talk. <laughs> I'm not going to edit any of that stuff Of course out. you Like not. it just has to, it, it has to be there. But, uh, <laughs> Damn it, Jonathan. I, the, the good, hey, if it makes you feel any better, there's not enough people that listen to this podcast <laughs> for it to impact our lives. Any, uh, well, anyway, uh, Natalie, Krebs, thank you so very much. I uh, appreciate your time. And uh, to all the folks that listened, thank you. We'll see you next time. Folks, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. If you're interested in coming on one of the catfish excursions that I'm offering here in the bayous and backwaters of the East Arkansas Delta, I'd love to have you. All the information about those trips is at the website, and you can find that by going to blackduckrevival.com. Click on the Experiences tab, and it'll take you straight to a description of those trips. They're a couple days of catfishing, bird watching, kind of an examination of the flora and fauna of those particular places that I love so much. Uh, I'll cook some really fantastic meals for you. We'll work on processing your fish, getting them broke down any way you'd like them, and packaged for you to take home to share with your friends and families. And uh, we can do some cooking instruction look at some different ways of preparing catfish uh, beyond you know perhaps the best way ever invented to eat uh, fish which is fried with uh, potatoes and hush puppies Uh, also if you're interested in keeping up with what i'm doing uh, kind of the best way to do that the place i'm most active is going to be instagram and that tag is just going to be black duck revival coming up here in the next couple of months 
I'll be doing a little bit of a turkey tour, so if you follow me there on Instagram, you'll be able to keep up with me, uh, me traveling around the country, hopefully uh, getting on some big time turkeys. And uh, I've also got some cool events I'm going to be going to. Uh, it's uh, just been decided I'm going to be over at BHA Rendezvous in Missoula in May, giving a presentation on waterfowl. And I will also be doing some wild game cooking demos at Drotherfest, or Drothfest, I believe, uh, over in northern Michigan. So uh, if you're going to be out there, I'd love to see you. Be a lot of a lot of cool people appeal, appearing. Uh, me, perhaps the least cool of them all, but still, I'll be there. Anyway, if you guys like this podcast and you want me to to continue to be able to uh, produce it and make it, please help me out. Uh, subscribe on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Leave a review, uh, either written or just a five-star review. And please tell a friend. Tell your grandma. Tell uh, your kids. Tell anybody about the podcast. The more we can get people listening and uh, kind of consuming this content, uh, the more options we have for uh, going different places, interviewing cool people, and just uh, continuing to bring you this podcast, which I so enjoy making. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, folks. We'll see you next time. Until then.